You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. Prayer songs for the church to live with the hope of salvation in a sin-broken world. And that's exactly what these psalms provide for us and give to us. And then, and how that these psalms help us. And this morning, we will be in Psalm 3. So however you access God's Word, if you'd go ahead and find that. Psalm chapter 3. And before I read this, just a quick note of context here that will hopefully help you as I'm reading through this, so that maybe there's some connections that can be made here. There's actually a a subtitle for this psalm. Uh, It's one of the first psalms we have that has a title that tells us what the context was. This psalm is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom. So David penned this psalm as he was running from his son Absalom. Okay, So as I read this, keep that in mind. Psalm 1, beginning, Psalm 3, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord. And he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. May we heed it. Pray with me, please. Father, as we come to your word, we come to this holy moment as we are hearing you speak to us afresh, anew. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand these words. Lord, we pray that you will apply them in our lives. Lord, we pray that you will encourage us with us. And where we need to be challenged, that you would challenge us. Where we need to be confronted, we'd be confronted. Where we need to be built up and strengthened, that you would build us up and strengthen us. Lord, we just open ourselves to your ministry this morning. Work among your people. Establish this community of faith in Christ through this word. We pray because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. David, King David, was facing a serious distress in his life. Verses 1 and 2 tell us this. His son Absalom had betrayed him and was out to take his throne and in the process, most likely, David's life. Absalom is this interesting character in the Bible. He's he's not a man of high moral fiber at all. The Bible tells us that Absalom was a, a handsome man. In 2 Samuel 14, it says this about him. Now in all of Israel, 
There was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his hair of his head, there was no blemish in him. Wow. And yet, with Absalom's beauty apparently also came arrogance and pride and insolence. 2 Samuel 14, 15, 16, 17, that, all, that, all in those, those, those patches, passages tell us about what's going on between Absalom and King David. Absalom, actually it tells us in 2 Samuel 14, that Absalom went from bowing before his father king in submission and being kissed by his father with affection to overthrowing his kingdom, to overthrowing his reign. But he did it covertly. He did it slyly. Absalom began to execute a scheme that would turn the people against his father. He didn't build up an army to come against his dad. His, his intention was to turn the people against David. So the first thing that Absalom did was he got a horse and a chariot and he got 50 men to run before it. So apparently he was looking to build an image. It now looked like he was someone special with these 50 guys running before his horse and chariot. It looked like possibly that he was someone recognized and maybe even favored by the king. And Absalom then plotted to win the hearts of the people. In 2 Samuel 15 we find this. And Absalom used to rise early and stand before, beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, which was one of the things that, that the king did, when someone had a dispute to bring before the king for his judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And he, when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel. Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. And this was the conclusion of, of his actions. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. What a schemer. And what at one time was implausible, maybe even impossible, the overthrown of David's reign now became very likely. At one time, surely no one would turn on King David. Now his son is fomenting rebellion. We read that four years later, after what he was doing at the gate, or at the entrance, with these people coming for judgment, that four years later, the conspiracy continued to grow strong. And the word says that the people with Absalom kept increasing. And so a messenger was sent to King David, telling him the hearts of the people have gone after Absalom. And this is what David said in response to the messenger. 2 Samuel 15, 14. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise! And let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. 
Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And then a few verses later, so David went up the ascent of Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up and weeping as they went. It's a heartbreaking picture for us here. We find out as David's fleeing with his people, there are some that come out to help him, and then there are others who come out to mock him, saying, you're getting what you deserve. One of the sons of Saul hurls these insults at him. But it is because of this distress that David writes Psalm 3. So we understand what David means when he says in verse 1, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. He feels the pain, not just of his own son's betrayal, but that of so many others. Even his counselor went with, with Absalom. They were joining up against him. And it wasn't that they were just opposing David, they were mocking David. Verse 2, many are saying of my soul, saying to my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. See, what they were saying to him was meant to strike at his heart. It was meant to bring unrelenting discouragement to David. It was spoken to his soul, the deepest part of him. They wanted him pierced inside from what they said. They wanted him disheartened and discouraged. They wanted to shatter his sense of well-being. They wanted to take the fight out of him and leave him empty. They wanted him to have no hope, no recourse. They did that by claiming God had abandoned him. And God had, claiming God had rightly abandoned him. That God was no longer for him. That God was not a source of hope for him. There is no salvation for him in God. They were pressing. But David isn't listening to them. Instead, he shines the light on God's loving providence for his people. This is a psalm that gives us hope in the night of distress. And in Psalm 3, we see where David found hope in the middle of his distress. And knowing where he found hope, we are encouraged to find that same hope in our times of distress. So let's look at this, the rest of this, this chapter. In distress, number one, in distress, there is hope in remembering the Lord's provision. In distress, there is hope in remembering the Lord's provision. This is verses 3 and, and 8. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You, O Lord, are my glory. You, O Lord, are the lifter of my head. Verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Look at what David remembers about the Lord. The Lord is his shield. The Lord is his glory. The Lord lifts his head. The Lord is his salvation. This is the provision of God for David. What does he mean by the Lord is his shield? But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. What does a shield do? It protects. It protects the person. It protects that person from things hitting or harming them that are hurled at them. A shield in David's day would have been a, 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 like a handheld shield. 
that would protect the body pretty much from the knees to the shoulders. Okay? But David really isn't pointing to that kind of shield. He says, this is that you, Lord, are a shield about me, around me. That the Lord was protecting him from every angle, from every direction. This is because David recognized the threat is from all around him. In verse 6, he says his enemies have set themselves all around him. He recognizes every which way he's vulnerable if the Lord isn't his shield. He is exposed somewhere because the people are all around him. And he says, even though they may be around me, the Lord is my shield about me. So nothing is getting through the shield because it is the Lord himself that protects. Well, as followers of Christ, as we think about this, what are the things that protect us as followers of Christ, that shield about us? Certainly it is the Lord and it is the many provisions of the Lord. It is the Spirit of God in us who is the active presence of Christ in our life. We are protected with the shield in in the new covenant that is in Christ's blood that cannot be undone, that is unbreakable by anyone or by anything. We are protected and given this in the New Testament, the armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, our shoes prepared with readiness of the gospel of peace. We have the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. The people of God are also a protection for us. It's not just what God is doing. It's what God is doing through other people. There is a protection that the Lord brings to His people through the community of His people. When we come together, we live together, we regard other people as more important than ourselves. We understand what it is to confess our sins to one another. We understand what it is to come and, and, and help people and edify people that they might be built up in the faith. It comes when someone is willing to exhort us, to warn us and say, hey brother, you need to consider this. Or hey sister, you need to be looking at this. This is a protection of the Lord for His people. We are well protected by the Lord. Now, this isn't to say that we can't be hurt or be harmed in some way. It is to say that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that can inflict permanent damage on us, is how we understand this from the New Testament. We are protected from everything that would destroy our soul, and we are not afraid of the very worst thing in all the world, in all of history, in all of eternity, and that is the judgment and condemnation of God. We are protected against that. We are not afraid. And quite the contrary, we know we are forgiven and we know we are cleansed of sin. Our life is protected eternally. That is the promise that we have in the new covenant in Christ's blood. This unconditional covenant in His blood. David then says, the Lord is His glory. The worth and magnificence of David and his reign, his kingdom, it's not about other people's assessment. Or it's not in other people's praise like, wow, David, you're so good. You're so wonderful. You're so powerful. You rule so well. His glory is from the Lord. All that David did was from the Lord. He is his glory. 
All that David achieved was given him from the Lord. This means that other people cannot take it away. His glory was not in his reputation among men, but it it was in the Lord's activity in him and through him. That was his glory. That's where he found hope. That's where he got excited. And that can't be touched by other people and what they may say, what they may think, or what they may do, even those who are coming to dethrone David. It is easy. If you're like me, it is easy to let what others say dictate how we feel about ourselves and about what we do. David said, the Lord is the glory, my glory. He's the only one that can withdraw that. May we confess that our glory is the Lord. Our glory is in who he is by his very nature and what he does by his very power. Then David goes on. David says, the Lord is the lifter of my head. We read earlier, David left Jerusalem uh, weeping with his head covered, but he knows the Lord is the one who lifts his head, and he need not be ashamed. When a person's head is bowed, it's usually because a person is ashamed. They don't don't want to be seen. They don't want to see other people because oftentimes of what they feel inside, the shame that they feel. They don't want to make eye contact with someone else. They might feel their scorn There's no such thing with the Lord. He lifts our head. He tells us we are His own. He took our sin and the consequences of our sin. He took the guilt, the death, the condemnation, the alienation, and the shame. He took it all and He removed the cover of shame from our heads and He covers us now with His righteousness that even though we sin, we can always look up. He lifts us so that we don't ever have to bow our heads in shame because He has forgiven us in Christ. When others may turn on us, we know in Christ there is no condemnation. Family, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do we really understand that? Do we really believe that? That isn't talking about how big or how bad your sin is. It's talking about how powerful Christ is and how effective His blood is to cover sin and to remove it. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we need not fear what others may, may, may know about us. Or fear what others may think of us. Why? Because the Lord has carried our sin and our shame away from us in His sacrifice on the cross. He lifts our head. He gives us confidence. He makes us holy. And we can look anyone in the eye without shame or embarrassment because of Christ. Because we know we still sin and fall short. But we know that the provision's been made. David finally said this, the Lord is his salvation. If they were trying to strike despair into David's heart, it didn't work. He didn't believe them. He didn't believe that there was no salvation for him from God. And quite the contrary, salvation belongs to God and he executes it for his people. The real danger here was for David's enemies. 
There was no salvation for them because they persisted in their defiance of the Lord and in their rebellion against King David in defiance of the Lord. See, salvation, again, is this simple picture. It is deliverance. It is redemption. And the Lord actively provides salvation for His people. He actively saves. I love this. I wish I had more time to do this. But if you go back to Ephesians 2, you will see that there is a past tense part of salvation, a present tense part of salvation, and a future tense of salvation. God has saved us in what Christ did on the cross some 2,000 years ago. That is what happened in the past. At a specific point in human history, Jesus literally, physically died on a cross. And in that moment, what took place there, salvation was brought about for God's people. But we don't just experience it. We're not just pointing in the past. We're pointing to today. God is actively continuing to apply that salvation in my life and in your life if you're a child of God every day that we live. It has this present sense. It continues to save us. It continues to redeem us. It continues to cover us. And then there is this future sense of our salvation. Because in this life, we still deal with sin. We still deal with a fallen, sin-broken world. But we know Jesus is coming again. And when He comes, the salvation will be full. It will be complete. And we will experience the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. In distress, there is hope in God's provision in our life. He is our shield. He is our glory. He is our lifter. And He is our salvation. When you are struggling with whatever comes against you, whether it's from attack, whether it's health challenges, whatever is the cause of distress in your life, remind yourself of God's provision. These things tend our souls. They carry us and provide for us. Second, in distress, there is hope in crying out to the Lord. Verses 4 and 7. In distress, there is hope in crying out to the Lord. Verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, and He answered me from His holy hill. Verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. David didn't just complain here. He could have. We would understand that. We go through distresses. We go through difficulties in our life. You know, it's easy to complain. It's easy to gripe, but this isn't what David was doing. He poured his heart out, but he poured his heart out to the Lord. This wasn't a gripe. This was a lament. A gripe is just, woe is me to whoever wants to listen. A lament is when we turn to the Lord and say, Lord, what is going on? Lord, this hurts. Lord, help me. Oh, Lord, look upon my situation and act. Now think about this for a moment. Although it had happened a number of years earlier, David could not have forgotten what Nathan the prophet had said to him when he came and confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba and his sin against Uriah. It was this horrific thing that took place. David took another man's wife. He had that her husband killed and then he tried to cover it up. And when God said no more, he sent Nathan... 
And Nathan said, because David, you did this, the sword will never leave your home. There will be death and betrayal and deception that leads to death in David's home because of his actions there. But David doesn't just take Absalom's betrayal of him as some kind of self-scorning, I guess I deserve this. David doesn't give up to his enemies. He turns to the Lord. Listen, the one who judged him is the one he's crying out to. He turned towards the Lord. Even in the judgment, he was turning towards the Lord. In the mercy of God, He is at work even in our sin and in the consequences of our sin. He does not abandon His people in their sin. He comes alongside and He works alongside of us because that is who He is. Not because we're worthy of it or do something to earn it. In His people, God is at work even when we sin. And David didn't listen to those opposing Him saying, Basically, they were accusing him of being a failure. They were accusing him in that God abandoned and withdrew his favor from him. They were accusing David in in their judgments against him. But the one who could justly accuse David was the one who was his shield and lifter and glory and his salvation. There is such mercy and grace with our God. Yet, as God's people, we know we have an enemy of the soul. He is the one that is described in Revelation 12 as the accuser of the brethren. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. God's Word tells us many things about the evil one. That he is a liar, he is a murderer, he can appear as an angel of light. His purpose is to deceive, he roams about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But he's described in three different places as an accuser of people. And what these people were doing against David was just an expression of what Satan does. See, Satan is masterful at throwing our sin in our face. He is masterful at trying to rob us of joy and confidence in the Lord by throwing our sin up in us, against us. Please hear this. If you, if we are feeling accused of our sin... And it is leading to depression, to an inward spiral of guilt, to losing our joy, to losing our hope, to feeling like we've blown it. Then it is the evil one who's accusing you. When the Spirit convicts of sin, it is to move us towards Christ and grace. Even when the Spirit works discipline in us, it is to bring about a greater experience of salvation through Christ and the corresponding deeper joy and fuller life that He has for us. That's God's side of the new covenant. That's what God has promised to do. That is sealed in Christ's blood, not in our obedience. 
The the accuser always works to destroy the people of God, to render us useless, to to make us into navel gazers, to dishearten us, to bring despair into our life. The Spirit always works to build up the people of God. And He does that through conviction. He does that through discipline. But the ultimate part of this is redemptive, not punitive. You know, accusing is just so often, it's not always, but often used in such a negative context in Scripture. I mean, we find even in this use of Satan, as I mentioned earlier, Job 1 says, Satan accuses Job before the Lord. Basically, accuses Job of having a convenient, shallow faith that would easily fall away if adversity hit. In Zechariah 3.1, we find this, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. This is what Satan does. The Lord, in his spirit, moves us towards confession and repentance and trust. When Satan accuses, it's just to destroy you. Don't listen to the accusations that would seek to undermine the work of grace in your life. And what does David pray for? David prays that God would save him, that God would strike his enemies in the face, and that God would break their teeth. Now, all three of these things are essentially asking the same thing, for God to deliver David from the schemes and plots of Absalom and his cronies who want to do him harm. If you think about it this way, hitting someone in the face would cause them to release anything that's in their grasp. I always think about the quote from Mike Tyson, you know, the former heavyweight fighter who just could pummel people. And he was asked one time about his opponent and the plan his opponent was bragging about to beat him in a a fight. And Mike Tyson says this, everyone has a plan until they are hit in the mouth. The schemes and plots of David's enemies would be undone when God smacks them in the face. And we read, he begins to do that. His counselor that went over, that left him, that betrayed David and went to Absalom, the Lord began to to confound him and to confuse him so that his counsel was no good. His counsel was wrong to David. Breaking their teeth is an image of a predatory animal with its prey in its teeth. You take out the teeth, the prey is released. All this is David asking for deliverance from the plans and plots of Absalom to overthrow his reign and to kill him. Now, I think for us, reading this, you know, some 3,000 plus years after it was written, you might be thinking, well, that is kind of brutal. And we have other psalms, imprecatory psalms that they're called, where, where the psalmist is calling down the judgment and, and he's calling God to break and to destroy other people. Um, in this particular instance, we might be thinking, hey, didn't Jesus tell us to love our enemies? Didn't Jesus tell us to bless those who curse us? Didn't Jesus tell us to turn the other cheek? Yes, He did. And we are supposed to do that. We are to pray with love and generosity. We are to speak words of blessings to other people who oppose. 
and with a desire for our enemies that they might come to the truth, that they might repent and believe in Jesus. But listen, Understand the greater context. Every time we pray for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done, by implication, we are praying for judgment to happen on the unrighteous. That's part of this. We can't escape it. And and we also must remember, but by the grace of God, we would still be the unrighteous. So it's not because we're superior or we figured it all out. In this psalm, David doesn't so much have a person in mind as much as the evil that has come against him. So I think we pray for God to stop evil and would would somehow stop the individuals who do it while at the same time we know we are to love our enemies, we are to pray for them, and we are to bless them. And David further, going on in his prayer, David pleads with God to arise. He began by saying that many are the enemies that are rising up against him. Now he calls on the Lord to arise. It's like a person who is seated and gets up in order to take action. And the beauty of what David is saying here is this wonderful reminder to us that the sides aren't equal. The enemies that are coming against David may be greater than David, but they're not greater than David's God. His enemies may number in the thousands, even tens of thousands. That's actually the word that's used. Probably the accurate translation is the tens of thousands of people that are gathering to surround me, to come against me. But David says, verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. They may be growing in number steadily, but the Lord is still greater. They may be multiplying, but for David, his God is greater. Oh, family, that our faith would be like that. Whatever may come against us, God is greater. Whatever may try to harm us, God is greater. Whatever may conspire against us, God is greater. We can trust him because he is greater than all. It wouldn't matter if there were hundreds of thousands or if there were thousands of millions coming against him, God is still greater. In distress, we cry out to the Lord. Finally, in distress, there is hope in our sleep. There is hope in our sleep. Verses 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. I lay down and slept. The people against him are rising up, but he laid down. He not only laid down, he slept. He spent an amount of time unconscious about what was going on around him. Vulnerable to what was going on around him. You would think that worry and fear and anxiety and uncertainty would keep him up at night. That's not what happened here. I mean, we, we probably all, to some degree, know how hard those nights are, and those nights, how hard they can be when we face distress in our lives, when we're facing some difficulty, some adversity, some struggle. We are awake with worry about what will happen next. We are anxious about what will be the end result. We are fearful of the things going from bad to worse. 
Our minds keep racing in the night. We are playing out conversations in our heads. We are trying to figure out what is the next scenario. We are trying to calculate our next move. And so we, we sleep, but we sleep li- little. And what sleep we do have is usually restless. I am encouraged and challenged. Corey Tinboom. I hope you know who that is. Corey Tinboom once said, Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. This is exactly what worry does, and it often seems to strike us at night. Not so for David. He laid down. He slept. Why? Because the Lord is his shield. Why? Because the Lord is his glory. Why? Because the Lord lifts his head and the Lord is his salvation. Why could David so confidently lay down? Because he cried out to the Lord and the Lord heard him and answered him. This isn't unique to David. You know, generally speaking, when the heart is at rest in Christ, when our confidence is in Him, when we live by the truth that to live is Christ and to die is gain, there is a freedom and a deeper rest that comes into our souls. Sleep comes because we are confident in the covenant-making God who never sleeps or slumbers. Psalm 121 tells us that our God never sleeps or, or slumbers. We may lay down, but He never does. There's never a day, there's never a morning that happens that finds the Lord sleeping. We sleep because we are finite. We sleep because we need to recharge. The Lord doesn't. Every night He is preparing fresh mercies for us to enjoy that next morning. Hear what Psalm 127 says. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For God gives to His beloved sleep. The whole context of this is not what we're doing, but what He's doing and the rest we find in what He's doing. Every night we stop from our labor. The Lord continues to rule and run His universe towards His intended design. Family, this means rest for us. We can trust Him with our distress. If we're trusting Him with our souls for eternity, how can we not trust Him with these things that come against us? And I think it's important just to mention here that there are those who deal with sleepless nights for physical reasons, aging reasons, emotional reasons, a lack of ability to go to sleep, what we call insomnia. Listen, it is a form of suffering. And as in all suffering, we are called to be faithful to the Lord in it. And we are called to look to the Lord in it. And I would hope, even in that, that if that is you, if you are struggling with sleepless nights, that you would avail yourself of the grace of God that is available to us in modern medicine. This is not contrary to faith or trusting in the Lord. It is part of His grace that He extends to to all people. Common grace, we call that. 
But whatever the source or cause of sleeplessness or restless nights, we still go to our hope in Christ, to his provision for us. And we replay for ourselves in the night that the Lord God is with us, that the Lord God is for us, that the Lord God is over us, and that he is our shield around us, that he is our defender, that he is our protector, and he is the one who, as David said, who sustains me. I woke up, I got up, because he sustains me. With this filling our minds and hearts, we will experience what Proverbs 3 tells us. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. So, distress is part of the human experience. You can consider it adversity, difficulties, trials, whatever you want. But distress is part of the human experience because we don't live in the Garden of Eden. Remember, we got kicked out. There may be many causes of distress in our life, but there's always just one hope, and that is in the Lord God. David would probably amen what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. In our distress, listen, what a redemptive thing this is. In our distress, the life of Christ is being manifested in our suffering because that's what God is doing in our suffering. What a wonderful, heart-reassuring truth this is as we deal with distress May we ori always orient ourselves to the hope that is in the Lord's provision, to the power of crying out to the Lord, and to finding God's rest in the night. Let's pray.